Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's my pleasure to have my good friend, James Abraham, who is the Sander Master Franchise for Israel. And uh, I've known James for a few years now. We've worked together very closely, and it's an absolute joy to have you on today. James, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me. So, James, tell me something. You, you've been in Sander for a while now. What, what are the four most common questions people ask you about sales and sales teams and making salespeople more successful that you hear on a regular basis? To be honest, I, I don't get enough people asking me really tough questions. So the more I find the more kind of surface and smoke mask questions to start off with. But, you know, they'll usually start off with things along the lines of, you know, what is this, you know, what as a sales leader could I do better when they're coming uh, with regards to, to Sander? How can I master the methodology? And, you know, I, I typically share that you, you can master the technique, but unless you choose to learn and master the underlying philosophies and impl- implement courage, it will take a very long time. Another question I get asked quite regularly now is how can I hold my people accountable? So accountability is from, from leaders mainly. Um, a lot of belief questions, you know, have others been successful? How are they controlling ego? I get asked a lot of questions with regard to certainly during times of uncertainty and crisis now. I advocate and teach a lot, a lot with regards to overcoming VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And then I think finally, one of the most common questions I get is, you know, I get people tell me that they say that they do everything properly. They're just not closing enough business and they don't know why. They're opening the door, um, they're doing everything perfectly right, but at the end of the day, they're not really closing. And, you know, it's, uh, they just can't figure out why. And currently now, a lot of what we're finding, especially during times like this, is a lot of stuff is servicing. And I ask this question, what is the job of a salesperson? So what is the job of a salesperson? To qualify. And most are struggling with qualifying, uncovering real pain gain and fear. It's tremendously uncomfortable. So it's a salesperson's job to be, un- to be comfortable being uncomfortable and uh, qualify hard so it's easy. And so those are the things I'm typically hearing these days. James, your first question was, how can I be a better sales leader? In 17 years of doing this, I don't think I've ever had a sales manager volunteer themselves for the firing line. What is it that makes a great sales leader? Appreciate that. And, and as I said earlier, it usually is a smoke mask question. It takes a little while for actually that to surface. And I think when, in today's world, especially with regards to the scale-ups and the startups and companies looking to get into hypergrowth and stuff like that, it's really around the fact that they need to acknowledge that they might be missing, uh, missing some crucial skills when it comes to, to sales management, to leadership. Today, many, many leaders are starting to realize that they're not equipped with what's necessary so that they don't need to, they can maybe stop burning money that they're getting from, from VCs and private equities um, and start working efficiently. But that would, you typically involves putting their ego aside and, and saying, wait, we need to refigure and we need to configure and see what we can do better on a personal level. I'd agree with you. I, I think very often what we find is that sales leaders have found themselves there sort of almost accidentally. And um, it wasn't really something that they expected to happen when it did. So early sales leaders, when they're very early in their career as a sales manager, need to understand 
that they have to really understand how to develop their people. So this means putting in place one-to-ones, skills training, uncovering their willingness to evolve and develop, making sure that there's performance reviews, accountability. Then they need to look at revenue and they need to look at what's real in the forecast. So helping their salespeople to understand how to forecast and how to identify how they're going to move opportunities forward. Regular communication with individual contributors to make sure that they understand what's in the pipeline, what's advancing, what's stalled, what they need help with. Looking at large opportunities and making sure that there's a strategy and a playbook in play and there's a plan. I think another quality that great managers really focus on is appreciation, making sure that they appreciate the salespeople, but also that they appreciate the customers. I think they need to be involved in that conversation with the customers. And then they need to get out into the field and communicate. They need to do ride-alongs. They need to do coaching. They need to do training. And the supervisory function then becomes much less important because they've got all the information that they need. But what I tend to see is a lot of managers play the role of supervisor and they also play the role of hero. Why is it that sales managers, particularly in tech, where actually things move so quickly, if they get bogged down in supervisory activity, then chances are they're going to let the uh, the ball drop elsewhere. Why is it that they still do that? You know, it's an interesting point. You said the word accountability, I think, twice in your response on that. And, and I think account- accountability is, is the basics. And it's hard to maintain accountability if we don't know how to maintain accountability, um, if we can't be accountable for ourselves. And, you know, I think today what business leaders should be asking themselves is what could I be doing differently? Can I be vulnerable and have humility? How can I, set, how can I coach my salespeople better? And I ask this quite a lot when I do sessions with groups. And what are the traits of excellent salespeople and outstanding managers and leaders? And again, it gets down to accountability. And being not only accountable to the company you're working for or whoever's above you or below you, but being accountable to yourself. Now, 20% are doing it right. 80% are not. Out of the 80%, 20% know that they aren't doing it right. And uh, know, know they're in pain, but their egos sometimes are too big and are keeping them from admitting it. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we just need to figure out what is holding us back on a personal level as business leaders and start focusing on, on what we could do differently. I think every CEO should know how to pick up the phone and make a cold call. If a CEO, if a, if a VP doesn't know how to pick up the phone and call another CEO, they're in trouble because these days the larger deals are started and ended that way. And so I, I, I reckon that it's a behavioral thing and, and obviously a mindset. Uh, an attitude is also in play, but uh, no technique will ever work if any of those two aren't on board. So on that note then, um, if the CEOs need to be, MVPs need to be involved in complex deals, who runs this, those sales? Good question. The AEs should be running sales and they need to know when to bring the higher level in and out as necessary. And, and that's why at the sales level, the AEs, um, the professional salespeople need to know how to maintain their emotional composure as well throughout the sales process. And I think that's what differentiates excellent, excellent salespeople from the rest. 
they know how to park their ego, they know how to maintain the, the, sale, the sale velocity, and they know how to bring people in and out as necessary without losing face um, and with pulling deals across the finish line um, uh, accordingly and staying on top of the leadership board. Well, the, obviously, there's the transactional sale, uh, which is the AE to a customer. But then when we're talking about the more complex sales, talk to me about the importance of planning, having a war room, regular engagement, and uh, the function of the AE as the captain of the sale in managing those complex deals. I've been in professional sales for over 25 years. And running standard training in Israel, I'm working with kind of local businesses from all the types of sectors. And focusing on, on you know, world-class sales performance and corporate leadership growth, especially with not only with companies, but uh, success-driven sales professionals. And, uh, you know, Marcus, it's so interesting. I'm helping these independent sales professionals that come to me. They've got winners' mindsets. They aren't getting the high level of sales performance training and coaching from their companies and their bosses that are kind of required for them to be on top of their game, bring in their A game, and stay on top of the leadership that are leaders board consistently month after month, quarter after quarter, and year after year without getting burnt out or mentally distressed while living a healthy and balanced lifestyle. And when they come to me, they tell me, look, I want to be the best. I want to be the cream, the 10% of what's going on. And they understand there are concessions that need to be made. They understand that you know, they need to invest in themselves and they, they need to try stuff that others are not doing. We have a rule at Thunder, and if your competition is doing something, you know, do stop doing it and do something else. And that's what I'm finding. I'm finding many sales professionals that are really, really driven and investing in themselves privately want to do things differently from their peers to be super successful. And to be honest, sometimes that can create some friction. But at the end of the day, on the long run, they're the, they're the ones who are, who, are, who are banking those big fat checks. So back to my original question then in terms of the AE, the salesperson being captain of the sale with these complex deals, that requires them to play a very careful and often difficult role in terms of managing the sale internally and keeping the egos and the uh, the politics at bay. So what are you advising those AEs to do in terms of skills development? First of all, Sales leadership, um, and I call it sales leadership. Um, you might hear uh, being a servant leader and, and all this stuff, but I call it sales leadership within the organization and knowing how to drive initiative, um, ask questions, work your methodology internally just as much as you work it externally. So internally, different departments also have their issues. They have their pains, they have their gains, they have their fears. And what we're finding is that good professionals know how to navigate internally and help their partners in the organization realize the problems that the deals can, can solve and have everyone on board and aligned to do what's necessary. And yeah, you said it, put their ego aside. So what do you advise AEs to do or salespeople to do when their VP of sales comes in on their white charger with polished armor? How do they manage those uh, expectations and clearly define the roles because it's not the VP of sales job to close the sale necessarily. If you're That's delegating true. up and depending on your VP of sales to close the sale, then why are you getting paid a big fat commission check at the end of it? 
Good point. I don't think it's necessary for a VP sales to come in and close every sale. But when there are the big expanding sales, your expansion deals, um, you have those strategic deals, it is necessary to know how to utilize and even come to your VP for help, for coaching. How many salespeople out there are listening to this show that have actually walked up to their VP and said, or their manager and said, Mr. Manager, Mr. VP, would you mind giving me a coaching session? I've got something coming up. How many VPs do you know that will walk up to their CEO, knock on his door and say, Mr. CEO, would you mind investing 45 minutes with me to coach me? And I think those are the, the elements of knowing how to be vulnerable, knowing how to be uh, uh, nurturing, um, uh, assertive. You told me that, Marcus. It's mm-hmm. basics when it comes to human communication. A lot of stuff we do with Sounder, the Sounder methodology is not a new selling tool. It's a communication tool, both for selling, for hiring, for, uh, for, for managing, for communicating inside the workplace and outside of the workplace. I really look at sales these days as a, as a holistic structure where if you have a good methodology, you're doing your behaviors, maintaining a, a mindset, and you have an excellent technique, it can help you on different, all different angles. But you know how to, you need to know how to, how to utilize uh, the methodology correctly in order to, uh, to fulfill. Excellent. You, you mentioned VUCA. Would you mind ex- uh, defining it and then explaining it? Absolutely. So I came across VUCA when I studied, uh, I did an MA in political science at Tel Aviv University, and I came across the concept. And VUCA is an acronym. Uh, it stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. And uh, I'll just throw us back in time to uh, the late 80s, where you know, up until the late 80s, world order was known. There were the good guys and there were the bad guys, depending on which side of the, of the planet you were on. Late 80s, uh, Soviet bloc fell. You had many new countries form. Nuclear weapons were in the different hands. No one knew what was going on. There was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, a lot of terrorism started. You had Iraq. You had Afghanistan and so on. And the U.S. military academy came up with the acronym for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, and really defined it's a VUCA world. Uh, because up until then, there was, there was pretty much a good, good amount of certainty. Even though there was you know, uncomfortable certainty, it was there. And so the business world then took this concept um, and, and started to define, use it to define these type of scenarios. Brexit, for example, but I bet anyone would want to swap Brexit with, with Corona. But uh, uh, you know, even the days of Brexit, that was VUCA, VUCA times, um, when uh, a new president gets, gets elected, VUCA. We currently now live in a VUCA world. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, volatility, complexity, and ambiguity. We know that uh, we're operating in a VUCA world. The challenge here is how do you make the best of that uncertainty? How do you capitalize on the volatility? And how do you operate whilst maintaining a clear head with all the ambiguity and doubt? Good question. Um, and so the, what we do in order to overcome VUCA is really to uh, substitute volatility with vision uncertainty with understanding, complexity with clarity, courage, and uh, ambiguity with agility. And uh, really taking uh, the substitute. First of all, we have to recognize when things are happening. If there's uncertainty, then we need to start asking questions. We need to start getting an understanding of what's going on. Many people don't do that. For us, 90 days back, 120 days back, there was a lot of uncertainty and everyone froze. No one asked those great questions. Here in Israel right now, we have the, we have the, the COVID starting a, another wave. And, and many times I'll ask business leaders, are you, 
planning on sitting by and just twiddling your thumbs and going into paralysis again like last time? Or are you willing to ask the questions of what we could, you could do better, what you could do different? What has this uh, crisis maybe surfaced? What weaknesses have been always been, your, always been underlying in the organization? You never paid attention to them, and you're actually able to have the opportunity to uncover them now and deal with them. That's with regards to uh, uncertainty. With volatility, um, it's really about having vision. Um, it's knowing where we want to go, where we want to get to. What are the, uh, the landmarks? How do we navigate? And having vision in where, you know, what, what should happen next. With regards to uh, complexity, it's getting, gaining clarity, implementing courage. Anything you'd like to uh, maybe add on that, uh, Marcus? Uh, absolutely. I think you need to ask yourself the question, and then what? And then what? And then what? Mm. If you don't keep asking yourself those kind of simple questions to try and work out the different scenarios and the different permutations and possibilities, then chances are you won't have put in place a plan. And this is where it's not the plan that matters, it's the planning. And Mm -hmm. you need to think about contingencies. If X happens, then what do I do? If Y happens, what do I do? If Z happens, what do I do? And look at the different permutations. But I think a lot of people shy away from the work, the effort. And particularly in complex selling or in an environment where you've got change enforced on you, if you're not putting the heavy lifting in, in terms of planning and forethought, then chances are you're going to get blindsided. It's not like uncertainty is a new thing. We've all gone through it in the past. We've had upheaval whether it's the uh, the Cold War, whether it was the um, fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, Perestroika, whether it was the first Iraq War, the second Iraq War, uh, we've had, I think is my fourth or fifth recession in my career. So we need to look back at history. I think we forget that many of these cycles have happened before and we can learn a lot from them. It's not like pandemics haven't occurred before. We've had the Spanish flu, there was the, uh, the plague, the Black Death. And we know after each of those, how well, during each of those, how people behaved and how human beings behave when they are in panic mode. We can observe the psychology of uh, crowds and of large groups of people and recognize that we need to have a better alternative than to just rely on our reptile brain, which typically will just put us into either paralysis or fight mode. So it's so important that we spend the time to allow our uh, lower brain functions to settle so that we can think rationally and reasonably about what's actually happening. And we need to get away from the whole idea of these fake truths and look for absolute truths because so often what we find is that we make assumptions and whilst those assumptions may be valid we need to establish what evidence there is for them so when i'm working with my clients i mean i'm i'm delighted to say that none of my clients have really taken any backward steps there've been a few hiccups along the way but throughout covid my clients have been continued to prospect. They continued to advance sales. Yes, some sales went stalled 
and the stuff that wasn't real fell off the cliff. But most of them are achieving quota. I've got, uh, I think, an average quota attainment of 140 to 220% among my clients. There are a few that are outliers either way. I've got some that are doing less, but I've got some that are doing 3,000% of what they expected. So that kind of irons it out. And in each case, it's having put the planning and the forethought into what's really going on here. Is my expectation real? Is my assumption real? What if? And asking ourselves really simple questions, well, why do we do it that way? looking at our policies and procedures, because if our policies and procedures have not been reviewed in the last six months, chances are they've become a habit. And the danger there is that if we become a slave to bad habits, then we will continue to perpetrate negative outcomes. And that's on us. So in terms of habit formation, what do you advise your clients to do, James, in terms of developing really good working habits? Great question. So, I mean, I, I sometimes I tell people, often, what do I do? And I say, I'm a behavioral change business. I help companies take bad habits, get rid of them, and bring on better ones. And with regards to VUCA, you know, I, I'd be happy to give you some of the, some of the, the stuff that, that, you know, we advise our clients on actually overcoming to management. Yeah. So with volatility, you know, it's the quality of being subject to frequent, rapid, and significant, and significant change. And in a volatile market, for example, the economy can rise and fall or considerably in a short period of time. And the direction of a trend may reverse suddenly. And I think that's what we're all experiencing. So what can managers do to relieve the tension in a volatile market? Be adaptive in decision-making. Have clarity of vision, short-term and medium-term, not long-term. Communicate clearly to reduce confusion. Determine intent and, and resolution. The uncertainty is the component of that situation in which events and outcomes are unpredictable. So businesses and businesses, you know, everyone hates uncertainty. And if you ask anyone, everyone hates uncertainty, clearly. And when it's the driving force behind the decision you have to make, you need to find other ways to create certainty for the business on a behavioral level. So what can managers do in uncertain markets? They can become more flexible, cope with doubt, build commitment and consensus of approach. Maintain accountability, develop new perspectives, new behaviors, create risk management ideology, be more aware, ask those questions that you've just mentioned as well. What if? And with regards to complexity, it involves a, you know, a multiplicity of, of issues and factors, some of which may be you know, interconnected at some point. And anything that increases complexity in an already complex situation, you can cause confusion and fear amongst the team members, the company in the whole, and the problems escalate when there's a complex environment that people need to work in. So in that manner, what I would suggest that managers do is understand the links between cause and effect. Simplify processes and procedures. Make things easier. Recognize nothing is permanent, which is super important. Nothing's forever. And encourage development and generation of ideas. Just generate more different ideas. Try different stuff. And with regards to ambiguity, so ambiguity is manifested in lack of clarity and the difficulty of understanding exactly what the situation is. Now, I don't like ambiguity just as much as anyone else. But what's expected of a manager during an ambiguous time? Communicate directly with clarity. 
seek out to uncover alternative viewpoints, different behaviors, different techniques, listen to diverse ideas and concepts, learn lessons that can apply in various uh, circumstances, learn lessons. I mean, I think that's one of the most important things that a sales professional needs to do. Know that when they've, they've, they've screwed up, that they've gotten their no or, or something didn't go well, first of all, know how to walk away comfortably if necessary, but to learn the lesson, learn the lesson, prepare, pre-call plan, debrief. At the bottom line is at the end of the day, I think those are the major behaviors that are necessary to be successful, especially during times like that. Preparing I, and debriefing. I think okay. it's really important that ambiguity is the mother of all bars. If you are unclear about what's expected and then someone doesn't meet your unclear expectation, you cannot blame them justifiably. You might blame them, but then actually you're looking at the wrong end of the problem. You need to be clear and explicit about what is required to be successful. And you need to review that on a regular basis, particularly now as circumstances are changing. We are just about to go into what is probably the next phase of the depression. In 2010, we had a 3% reduction in GDP in the UK. We're now being forecast anywhere between 15 and 22%. Now, that is unprecedented in any of our lifetimes. You know, we thought it was bad the last time. So now we need to think radically. It's no longer sufficient for us to sit back and say, well, you know, this too will pass. Yes, it might, but you probably won't survive. So one of the things I'm telling my clients to pay attention to is, okay, imagine it's the 1st of January, 2021, and we've now hit the depths of the recession, uh, the depression, and we're, we're looking at three or four years of dramatically reduced uh, GDP. Your customer base will be under enormous pressure. Your salespeople will be under increased pressure your suppliers and your customers' suppliers will be under enormous pressure. What can you do in order to alleviate some of that pressure to turn up and be there for them? What can you do to think differently and behave differently in order that all of you make it through this or as many of you as possible? What are the sacrifices you need to make? And look at your sales operation, your sales and marketing operation, and take a blank sheet of paper and ask yourself this question. If I had the resources that I'm going to have available to me in terms of cash and I could invest it, who would I still have on board? Who would I let go? Who would I need to attract? What would I need to change in terms of my outreach and my marketing, my business development activities, my sales and qualification process? What would I need to do to onboard and make uh, customers successful using our services and our products? What would I need to do in order to retain those customers? And if you're not using this time to ask yourself these questions now, I promise you, you are in for a shitstorm later. Now is the time to start making those uh, or investigating your options and be ready to make tough decisions. Because if you want to make it through this period, you absolutely have to be ready to make some tough decisions. And it's not going to be a pleasant experience. We know that. 
But hiding your head in the sand is not going to help you get through it. And in fact, what you're doing is you're putting at risk, you are threatening the entirety of your business and your sales operation. So James, tell me, what are the three questions that people should be asking you, but they're not? Oh my goodness, I don't know where to start there, Marcus. Okay. It's very interesting. Twelve questions they should be asking you, but they're not. <laughs> oh my goodness, I don't know if that if that will. Um, I think the main questions they need to be asking is, and you know what, I'm going to relate this to the VUCA concept on how to overcome it. Is you said something earlier? Said they have to make the decisions, and um, you know, a decision not to make a decision is also a decision. And what we find is. The mo- the, I think the main reason when it comes to business leaders and managers and so on, they're ma- making decisions is that they don't know what the roadmap needs to be in order to reach the point where they can make a decision. And if I were to substitute vol- uh, volatility with vision, you know, leaders need to restate their true north. What's their mission and strategy? What's their vision? What's the value? I mean, yesterday's vision, I don't know if it's relevant for tomorrow's vision. I don't know if it's relevant for what needs to happen. Whoever wrote their vision at uh, January 1st, 2020, needs to revisit that. They need to revisit it. And I think what they need to be asking themselves, and maybe even you know, people like ourselves, like us, is what can I do to deliver myself to the point where I can make decisions? So I think that would be question number one. Question number two is, what could my people do better that would put them in a situation where they're comfortable being uncomfortable? And that goes back to qualifying. And again, I think that's a decision issue as well. How can we decide who we're going to be working with and who are we not going to be working with? Um, if everyone's just trying to shoot for a sale right now, then chances are they're not really going to be getting the good I think the good clients that they need to be getting under these uh, circumstances. And so how can we qualify harder? I think that's question number two. And question number three is, how can I implement accountability in my organization? How can I be accountable to myself? How can I maintain accountability within the organization? Many organizations that I come across are very focused on, they want to change, but they're so focused on micromanaging that they're not really focused on the big picture. And so I, I, would, I would assume that would probably be uh, question number three that I feel that they should be asking. So how are you defining accountability? That's a great question. And, you know, it's starting with so much content on this stuff and we deal with it so much. It, first of all, everyone needs to know what, they, what their boundaries are and um, focusing on, on what they should be doing. Again, I, I think that the main problem is that managers don't know how to supervise and coach with the right ratios and maintain accountability for their people. Does that sound like something that rings a bell in your world? Ish. I think accountability is something personal. You hold yourself accountable. You can supervise, you can monitor, you can measure as a third party, but you have to hold yourself to account. And I think this is a philosophical and cultural issue um, that you need to instill right from the off in the recruitment process. And you recruit for people who take personal responsibility, who hold themselves to account. And when you're looking for great salespeople, look for people who volunteer to be coached, who volunteer for help, who recognize that they're not the finished article. I think one of the really interesting things in my experience is when I 
introduce the whole concept of accountability is the weak salespeople who know that they're going to get found out when they're being asked to hold themselves to account. They're the ones who leave. And we save people a vast amount of money in redundancy payments by clearing those people out. The ones who want to learn, who want to grow and develop, they're willing to be vulnerable enough to ask for help. And accountability is, again, the stuff that you need to hold people to account for is their behavior, how they act. It's the inputs. Now, you need to focus on the right inputs as well. It's not just activity. It's meaningful action that you need to measure and monitor. And this is where I think a lot of sales organizations go wrong because they monitor lots of things and they monitor the wrong activities. So they've, in my experience, dial rate actually isn't a particularly helpful thing to measure. Unique effective conversations is a really useful thing to measure. The velocity with which opportunities are moving through the pipeline. So are you advancing sales? the volume of opportunities that you've managed to accrue moving from qualified to closable. And a new metric that I've started to implement as well is the uh, conversion rate of first meetings to second meetings because we see so many first meetings being wasted and no clear future next step. I think the research on this is suggesting that seven out of eight first meetings never result in a second meeting. And when you consider the enormity of the cost, the effort, the blood, sweat, and tears that it takes to get one opportunity into the top of the funnel and to get that first meeting, and then you blow it because you haven't agreed a clear future next step. With those four, you suddenly start to find that your pipeline accuracy and your forecasting accuracy improves dramatically. And I've seen people go from 30 to 80% inaccurate forecast to between half and 5% accuracy uh, between um, uh, forecast and reality in about three months. So if in a time of volatility, you want certainty. So be clear about what it takes to advance a sale. Start focusing on the leading indicators. Your thoughts? I agree. And, you know, we talk, we teach upfront contracts and how to maintain your clear next steps and get those little decisions along the way. And that's a fabulous and tremendous tool. From most, a lot of salespeople feel uncomfortable using it. And at the end of the day, it, it shows based on, you know, the data you just presented. I'm very interested in everything with regards to the neuroscience of sales. And I, I talk a lot in training about how our brain works and what drives salespeople to do the stupid stuff sometimes that they do. And I think one of the most uh, tremendous discoveries I've had recently, and, and I talk about this a lot in my training sessions and coaching sessions, is um, that sometimes salespeople go into that first meeting and they're so keen on getting some kind of an indication of a sale or some kind of, put, they're pushing so heavily that they do lose a sale. But why does it happen? And, and what we're finding is salespeople are really they're really going out there to get a dopamine fix, a serotonin fix, some kind of a, it's like a, it's like an addiction and they're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And at the end of the day, because they're pushing the buyers kind of retreat and get in, you know, in their world, uh, from their point of view, is they feel threatened and then there's cortisol that kind of gets released in their head and they're like, just want to, you know, fight, fly the freeze. But the funny thing is that the salespeople 
are pushing for the wrong reasons. And uh, instead of getting a good amount of dopamine or serotonin down the line when they make the sale or get the appointment or get the next appointment and move you know, gradually through qualify each stage, um, they're really looking for a big, you know, a big shot in the arm of, of, of any kind of hormone that will make them feel good. So I think that's the main problem these days. And salespeople really need to know how to regulate their need uh, for those, those, those feel-good hormones and, and chemicals in their mind by maintaining, you know, maintaining consistency, knowing how to use a system so they don't do stupid stuff. Well, Mark Goulston, who is one of my mentors and the author of um, three very uh, great books, Just Listen and talking to crazy and the third book will come to mind in a minute. He talks about the salesperson needs to help the prospect have a dose of oxytocin because oxytocin is the hormone that allows you to feel part of something. It allows you to feel loved. It's the one that makes us feel more inclined to help and serve somebody else. It's the the bonding hormone. And what people forget, salespeople uh, have this fixation about wanting to be liked. And in the Sander methodology, we have as the first compartment of the submarine, bonding and rapport. And I think people misunderstand the purpose of the bonding and rapport compartment, because it doesn't really just exist at the beginning, it exists throughout the submarine. So it should actually be a thread that runs throughout every step of the process. And your number one job as a seller is to have the other person feel comfortable with you, human being to human being. And when you are speaking to a prospect, your job actually is to give them an oxytocin shot. It's to have them feel like there's some closeness, some bond between you and the prospect. And they don't have to necessarily like you, but they do have to have faith. They do have to believe that you have their best interests at heart. And I think far too often, salespeople forget that that actually is the uh, real objective. What we're trying to do is ensure that our prospects not only have faith in us, but they can trust us to spend their money with us and that they will then want to be loyal to us as their partner. And again, I think salespeople try and do stuff to prospects rather than do stuff with their prospects and with their customers. And those three questions, what do I have to do in order to have you feel confident and comfortable that you can spend your money with me confidently? What do I need to do to create the conditions for you to be loyal to spending your money with me on a regular basis? Because that we are helping each other. And what do I have to do in order to build faith so that you know that my word is my bond? I will always tell you the truth, that I will always have your best interests before mine. I will make sure that I will do what I can to serve you. And I think that's been lost to a large extent. I'm not sure how, how real it was ever. But you look at the top performers. I, I look at the top performers in our network within Sandler, and those guys are fabulous at 
giving people confidence to spend the money, to stay loyal. You've got people like uh, John Rosso, who've got clients of over 20 years. And it's quite stunning to think that people have just basically said, it's okay, every month you can take, take a swipe of my credit card because I know that it's a worthwhile investment. You have my best interests at heart. And they have absolute faith in them. And far too often, salespeople are selfish and self-orientated. Their managers are selfish and self-orientated, and they do not build those conditions. So if we look at this scenario that we're heading into, and we've already had COVID, and people have had an opportunity to step up to the plate and say, I am here. You listened, uh, I know, to my interview with Dale Dupree and how his father, Curtis, turned up with the trailer, but he almost never walked away with the copier because he turned up and he said, look, how do we get this? You know, do you still need this? If you do still need this, how do we make sure that you can keep it so that we don't have to take it away from you? Yeah, we may have to reduce our service. As people are going into this really tough economic time, which is going to be sustained, what are you suggesting to people, advising people to do in order to show up? to really be fully present and to pay attention to their customers' needs and stop selling selfishly? I'd say one thing, shut up and listen. But really listen. Again, I think the bottom line is buyers do business with people that clearly they like and, and are like themselves, with companies that they feel comfortable with, that they trust. Now, you said uh, Look, you know, there are a ton of people out there that I like, but I don't trust. And there are some people there out there that I, um, uh, I don't like, but I, I do trust. And, and so at the end of the day, I think it's really listening. It's asking good questions. It's being present. It's, you know, and I tell this to all my clients, it's not about you. It's about them, especially during times like this. When was the last time someone asked you as a buyer, um, you know, your deepest, you know, Mr. Byers, when was the last time someone asked you, how, how, what can we do in order for us to work? What needs to happen for us to work together long-term so we can support your growth and help you get through this, this, this crisis, time of uncertainty, and help your company grow? I don't even know if, if it's in the vocabulary of most sales organizations or most salespeople. But again, it's the programming. And, um, you know, you've done a few sessions, um, a podcast with uh, other people or other people that talked about transaction analysis. There's a lot of scripting. And I think it's being aware of your scripting, being aware of your tape, being aware of your ego state, and knowing how to be more nurturing, vulnerable, courageous, assertive, and listening to the other side and understanding one thing. Not everyone will become your client. And that's okay. And once we realize that, we feel comfortable with that, then we can actually achieve much more by finding those who will. And I'm going to go back to the original point I made at the beginning of the conversation we had qualifying qualifying that is the essence of sales i look at i look at the funnel as real estate not everyone is worthy to have an apartment in my building i have to find the ones that uh, need the space i need to find the ones that um, have a budget to pay me the monthly rent and those who can make the decision why would i hold a funnel of, of opportunities prospects keeping up my precious real estate if they cannot be there. So if we think about it that way, and someone said this really interesting thing to me, he said, you know, when you disqualify from your funnel, you're not only disqualifying that line or, you know, in your CRM, but you're also disqualifying it and you're removing it mentally. 
So knowing how to make sure that you've made room in your in your pipe, in your funnel for the right opportunities, the real ones, the ones that will take you farther, furthest and help you make money, but also help them become long life clients. And, and from, I think, really connecting to what you mentioned earlier with Sandler uh, trainers that, that you know, are really fabulous in the way they, they maintain and retain and expand their businesses. It's all about trust. And it's all about listening and being present and making the buyer and the company that, that should be buying a service in the center of attention and not making it all about the salesperson. So if we look at what's coming, how can we be genuine partners with our existing customers? Because I think the single most important thing that any company can do going into this is look after their existing customers and keep those customers. So what are you advising people to do in terms of customer retention? I think one of the things that we need to do is, is ask our customers right now. It, we have to initiate this conversation, not be afraid of having anything, understand this time's uncertainty, what needs to happen for us to continue working long-term together so that we can provide you with value and help you get through this. And that's the type of question that not many, not many sales organizations or sales professionals will initiate. That's not they. They won't say it first if that's if that makes any sense. So being vulnerable um, and asking the question up front. I, I'd I'd take that further, and I would also raise the question: What is it that we're not doing that we should be? How are we missing expectation? What is it that you're not happy with? What do we have to do in order to improve? And I think very few organizations and certainly fewer salespeople are willing to ask those questions because they're afraid of getting the answer. And it's so important to know if you don't understand what it is that your customers are frustrated by, especially now, then you're going to find yourself in very hot water. But when they fire you and it'll come as a surprise, you need to stay ahead of these problems. And you also need to ask for forgiveness. Now, if you haven't been uh, serving them as well as you should, if you haven't been delivering what they expected, if you don't know what they expect, then it's on you. That's your fault. So go out there and put yourself in the firing line. Be brave and invite criticism, invite the negative feedback so that you can do something about it. Because if you don't, they will just fire you. You'll get an email or a text at some point saying, don't bother coming in this week or we're ending the contract. And then that's on you. And it costs you anywhere between six and 21 times more to bring in a new customer than to sell to an existing customer. So if you're smart, you'll be out there asking for the negative feedback. And there's a fabulous tool that Sean Coyle taught me called Recon. Remember or remind me. Remind me what we discussed last time. Remember what it was like before we came in. Remind me what we agreed to do between now and the last time we spoke. Evaluate. Evaluate is look for the negatives. James, I'm interested in the bad, not the good. What is it that we are not doing that we should be? How are we disappointing you? What are we falling short on? Are there any promises we haven't kept? Any expectations we haven't met? What's changed? Changed for the better. 
what's improved as a result of you working with us? What results are you getting? What surprised you about working with us? Where are the opportunities over the next 30, 60, 90 days that we can help you? How can we ally ourselves with you in order to help you make it through this next tough period when the government subsidies are stopping, when the banks are able to start to foreclose, when uh, landlords are able to evict, when you're going to have to make tough decisions? Where are the opportunities for us to support you and help you? What are the next steps? That's remember, evaluate, changed opportunities, next steps, recon. Go out there and invite the negative feedback. Find out from your customers exactly what it is that you need to be doing in order to serve them better and turn up and be present. Make sure that you are there for them because keeping your customers has never, ever been more important. So James, what are you being influenced by in terms of what you're reading, watching, or listening to? So I'm reading uh, Mark Golson's book. I think it's the second time since the beginning of the pandemic. Very, very powerful. Sales Coaches Playbook by, by Bartlett. Prospecting by Rosso. I like to go back to the basics during times like this, the foundations. Making Channel Sales Work by Kelke and Davis. And um, uh, I recently reread, I'm okay, you're okay. So I just want to say that again. Yeah, <laughs> Making Channel Sales Kelke and, and Davis. Uh, I'm okay, we're okay, reread that. Um, I'm really going back to basics. An interesting book I'm reading recently is The Leading Brain. So the, the sci- a powerful science-based strategy for achieving peak performance with regards to, to leadership. Um, and so, so that's what I'm focusing on right now. I'd strongly recommend that people read Real Influence by Mark Galston, which is his sales book, which is all about listening empathically. Really very good. And uh, I would also recommend that people read Mark Schaefer's book, Marketing Rebellion, which is about humanizing your marketing. Marketing and sales are a continuum. And in fact, sales is a subset of marketing. And if you don't humanize your marketing, chances are you won't be humanizing your sales. So two strong recommendations there. Tell me something. Have you been blindsided in the last couple of years by a client? I'm curious. Oh, that's an interesting question. I guess when I, you know, brought Sana to Israel, you know, it's interesting. Everyone said it would work here. Building a business here in Israel, and everyone thought I was, I was mad and said, oh, there's Sana that's work in Israel, it won't work here. So I, I had some curveballs kind of thrown at me along the way, uh, building Sana in Israel. And, and I think there were a few potential prospects that I think they threw me off balance on many different occasions. At the end of the day, I, I'll be honest and tell you, I can't thank them enough. I owe them, I owe them a lot of money. They've helped me build the business. And, and I learned my lesson. I, I, I love debriefing and I love learning lessons. And from my point of view, every time, every time I fall down, I, I get right back up again, just figure out what happened and, and push forward. Because I think life is all about uh, the lessons that we learn and make being successful in sales. And successful salespeople are okay being not okay. And they're fine failing. And if you fail really well and you fail magnificently, you will become magnificent and successful. So I embrace that, that, that philosophy. Excellent. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot James, age 23, what would you whisper in his ear? Probably, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the logical answer would be get involved with Sandler back then. Uh, I think the emotional response would be just keep on doing what you're doing um, and just, just learn to fail and uh, put your ego aside. 
um, and yeah, and, and, and start listening. Be more empathic. Understand that every single person that you interact with um, is going through something, and nothing is personal. It's never personal. Know how to separate your your identity and your role, and just keep pushing forward and learn new lessons, and then ultimately you'll reach the point where you're where you're happy. It's not all about money. Fair point. What what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? So. I've been doing a lot of a lot of training and coaching recently, due to to the situation, um, and we have a good, a good amount of content on how to help organizations deal with it with uncertainty and 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 the crisis. I'm very busy training, and I recognize you know it would be probably reaching out to more driven, successful, focused, winner mindset CEOs, self professionals, and, and business owners. And I pick up the phone and I, I dial and I make my calls when necessary. I got good um, business coming in, but. I feel that it's always about knowing how to reach out more. So prospecting, I'll be vulnerable and say prospecting is something I, I try to do consistently. I should do more of it. And I find that uh, it's a little bit more struggle right now due to the uh, work I've got coming on. But I, I, I think that that's something that I should be doing. I should be doing more. One of the things my clients are finding very useful is prospecting by asking for referrals into the supply chain of customers and also for asking for referrals into the customer's customer. And those two are an incredibly rich vein that almost no one prospects into. And it's a big mistake. So definitely uh, worth having a peek into those. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting you say that because uh, you know, we talk about the referrals and people feel uncomfortable with that. And I can say, and we, you know, it's a Jenny Williamson thing. You know, it's unethical to try and uh, sell somebody something that they don't need, but it's equally unethical not to try and sell somebody something that they do need. It's equally unethical to try to not reach out and ask for a referral. If, if the person who get referred, it needs your help. It's not, it, you know, it's equally unethical not to reach out to anyone out there that needs your help. Prospects and buyers need us to reach out to them. They're waiting for our calls. It would be unethical and a disservice if we didn't. Well, I think you can take that further with the question to your customers and say to them, so James, tell me something. If you look at your supply chain, who are the three to five most important suppliers that you have? And if for some reason they went to the wall because of this depression that's coming, it would dramatically hurt your business. I don't suppose you could introduce me to them, could you? Where I might be able to help them make it through this. And equally, same question. So James, tell me, who are the five most important customers that you have who have to sell and they're facing the same kind of pressures that we all are? And if they went to the wall or they had to reduce their spend and the first place they would look is at you, um, then who would the first five be that would come to mind that maybe you can introduce me to so I can help them make it through this difficult time in order that they can continue spending with you? Asking those questions, you know, if you get six to 10 good introductions like that, you are onto a winner. I mean, to get six to 10, that, that's a week's worth of prospecting with two questions. Crazy not to ask. Okay. Absolutely. So James, thank you so much for today, been insightful as ever. How can people get hold of you? So my email address is james.abraham at sander.com. My website is israel.sander.com and um, LinkedIn, James Abraham, strategic and tactical sales performance trainer and leadership coach. Excellent. James, once again, thank you. Thank you. 
So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch with me at marcuskauke at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a great guest, then please introduce yourself to me. If there's someone that you know who would be a great guest, connect us and I'll do my best to get them on as a guest. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.